Hello, it's Dr. Jason Lee. We had an abbreviated season four because of COVID-19. We're back on track now with season five. We'll start with a fresh slate. This season is sponsored by Pfizer Canada. We're gonna be talking about anaphylaxis, allergies, and of course, some COVID and how it's relevant to anaphylaxis and allergies. Without further ado, I welcome you to this season. And thank you for listening. Zachary Rubin. Uh, he's an allergist immunologist in the USA. And we've noticed a lot of similarities and questions and, you know, uh, issues around the COVID-19 vaccination. So uh, w welcome, uh, Zachary. Um, yeah. Thank anything, you so much for having me. Yeah, and thank you for the opportunity to talk to you. Um, what would you say is the most common misconception people have right now that, you know, is driving a lot of this uh, vaccine hesitancy and vaccine worry? Well, that's a great question. I, I think the fear of the unknown drives a lot of conspiracy theories where the science has been, you know, people think it's rushed. They think that this vaccine was started uh, in March and that we've made this technology out of nothing and we're just trying to stuff it down people's throats. But in reality, when you look at mRNA vaccine technology, it's been studied for about 30 years. This is not anything new. The only newness to it is the fact that it's commercially available for the first time. We've been looking at it from the standpoint of influenza, Zika virus, Ebola virus. It's really been studied, but the money just wasn't there. And with the pandemic, uh, we've been pouring billions of dollars across the world. And there's been a lot of buy-in um, from many people in terms of companies, but also trial participants. Um, and if you look at the FDA package labels for other vaccines, you know, I, I wonder if you're aware of this, but if you look at something like the shingles vaccine, there were 17 trials, but that only included 17,000 participants. Mm -hmm. you look at Pfizer alone, there's been over 40,000 people in those trials with half of them getting the actual vaccine, half of them getting placebo. So over 20,000 people were studied over four months looking at the safety and the effectiveness. And so when we sit down and talk about this, we have to really dive into what this actually means and, and tell people, hey, this is not something that's rushed. This has been rigorously tested with a lot of people involved, a lot of money involved. Um, and you know, we're gonna hopefully be able to give this to the world at, with as little cost to the patient, to the, to the community as possible, and that hopefully governments will be able to uh, back people up. Yeah, and you bring up some good points. Like, uh, like all medications and therapeutics, including vaccine, you know, they go through rigorous trials, uh, including phase one, which is in healthy human volunteers, to make sure there's no, you know, wacky or wonderful side effects. Then we go through phase two, which generally, you know, tries to prove effectiveness in a small population. And then we go, we've gone through phase three. So all three phases have been done for every vaccine that is currently being approved. Um, so yeah, that, I, I think that's a huge misconception that things were yeah. rushed. And I think, uh, you know, what, you know, a lot of people may not realize is that it has gone through all three phases. The numbers of patients that were studied we're very robust in terms of clinical trials. So, you know, we have uh, other therapeutics and vaccines, as you noted, uh, with much less trial experience. Um, Absolutely. Um, you know, the other misconception that goes out there is that this vaccine will mutate our DNA. Um, and, and so the understanding of how this technology works, I think, is paramount. When you think about mRNA, we have to think of basic biology concepts, which is DNA is the backbone of our bodies that makes up all the proteins that makes you and me who we are today. 
Um, that is kind of like an instruction manual, or I like to think of it as a menu that when you go to a restaurant, you have a menu that tells you what you can eat. And then when you make an order, the server will write down that order. So that's the mRNA is that actual order, which is then taken to the chef to make the food. So that's your proteins. Um, but remember that order is not something that sits around. Typically the wait staff will tear it up after it's done. And that happens pretty quickly. And that, that's the kind of key concept there that mRNA doesn't, you know, that, that order doesn't change the menu. The mRNA does not change the DNA. They're not even in the same house of the cell. So this is something that conceptually makes sense and conceptually is considered to be safe. So look, we don't know the long-term effects of these vaccines because they're just coming out. But the other thing we didn't mention is that there's phase four studies. And that's where we do continuous monitoring after a vaccine comes out. So with this type of information age with social media where you've got the news cycle 24 seven, 365 days of the year, you're hearing about reports that uh, are honestly clickbait in my mind where they'll tell a headline of something that might've been terrible happening but that really needs to be rigorously looked into before we do anything. In our field as allergists, we're asked all the time, hey, uh, I heard about this severe allergic reaction or anaphylaxis to the vaccine, and it seems like it's happening at a very fast and high rate, but that's actually not the case. Um, when you look at the recent studies that came out from uh, the CDC looking at both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, with the first 6 million doses, the range is somewhere between two to 11 cases per 1 million dose. And that's not common at all. I mean, let's talk about it from the standpoint of when you drive a car, right? Mm -hmm. um, in the United States in 2018, there was 11 deaths per 100,000 people in that year. That's a lot higher. Again, uh, somewhere between two and a half to 11 cases per 1 million versus 11 deaths per 100,000. Just look at the math, it's pretty simple. You can see what people's level of risk is, but people are afraid because it's it's a new technology that makes it challenging. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, just to elaborate on the phase four trial, this is uh, something called post-marketing surveillance that uh, exists for every, uh, you know, newer emerging therapeutic. Um, so, you know, vaccine reactions, uh, you know, although it's somewhat voluntary in terms of who reports, uh, it is uh, fairly rigorous in terms of, you know, how we uh, regulate our, uh, you know, R&D and drugs that come out and therapeutics. So um, we do have this rigorous monitoring going on. We've had millions of doses now, and we've had an entire country almost fully vaccinated, uh, if you look at uh, countries like Israel. And, um, you know, one of the things, uh, just to put it into perspective uh, for my patients, I find helpful, is I just quote them their chance of mortality from actually contracting COVID. Uh, depending on their age range. And, uh, you know, really uh, the mortality rate is always going to be higher than any reaction rate. Uh, you know, I'm talking about serious adverse uh, reactions though. So you and I have both have had the uh, vaccine. Uh, I've had the Pfizer one. Um, I don't, I'm not sure which one you had, Zachary, but... Uh, I had the uh, Pfizer as well, yeah. Yeah, and then, you know, we both noticed our uh, uh, little side effects, which were really... Uh, nothing compared to actually contracting uh, COVID-19. So um, I don't know if that helps for patients to, you know, be reassured that, uh, yeah. I, I definitely agree with you that when you can tell your story to your patients of saying that I experienced the vaccine and the potential side effects of it, 
I believe that it's safe for you. I think that that personal touch is really important, especially within local communities that are highly hesitant to it. So throughout, throughout the world, there are people who are skeptical in all sorts of communities. But if you have leaders such as physicians like you and me talking about their story, I think that's really important. Um, and so, you know, I personally had the Pfizer vaccine early on, the first dose, I, I only had arm pain. The second dose, I was really tired for two days, but I was actually happy that I had those side effects because I know that that's actually my immune system activating and creating antibodies to help protect me from coronavirus in the future if I'm to come into contact with it. Now, if you don't have symptoms and that happens, it still means the vaccine's working. Um, so some people are a little bit more sensitive to vaccines than others, and we've seen this throughout all of the vaccines that we've studied in the past. So that's nothing new. It's just, again, this is a, a novel type of virus in a scary situation, so people are afraid. So the more we talk about it and normalize it, I think that'll help people get a better understanding of it. Absolutely, and I, I love your uh, restaurant analogy, actually, uh, because I never thought of uh, using a restaurant analogy. But that's perfect. So I do get asked this question quite a bit as well, that it can change your fertility or it can modify your DNA, you know, right. uh, as you know, and, 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 and I, lo I love the restaurant analogy, especially because it's hard for me to explain how, uh, as, uh, you know, as human beings, we don't actually have a reverse polymerase gene or we don't have reverse polymerases in our body. So we right. can't go from mRNA to back to DNA. We can only go one way. Right. Um, so um, yeah, you know, your explanation is a lot more, uh, you know, common sense and uh, easily communicable than, than mine, I think. Right. Explain the basic science. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, you know, when you, you spoke about uh, fertility issues, and I'm getting that a lot, a lot of women coming in saying, oh, my mother found out that uh, the vaccine can cause infertility. And I looked into that a little bit more deeply, like, why are people saying this? And there's been some grassroots misinformation campaigns going on in social media where they're trying to take this concept of saying, look, the, the antibodies that are produced by the vaccine could bind to the placenta and lead to miscarriage and lead to infertility by binding to those areas. And that's, that's what I found out. And that doesn't make any scientific sense because the thing is, if you get a natural COVID infection, then that should hold true, right? Because you're producing antibodies to a natural infection. However, we're not seeing any data across the country or any other uh, place in the world where COVID infections are increasing the risk of infertility. That's just not playing out. So to say that the vaccine causes infertility is based not in science, but in just misinformation and conspiracy yeah. theory. And I think a lot of conspiracy theorists look at, uh, you know, how breastfeeding women and pregnant women were intentionally excluded from the trial, like in most trials. Right. Because that's just, you know, uh, medical bioethics. Uh, and, you know, we, it's really hard to get ethics approval in, in, a, in a pregnant population. Uh, and right. they kind of misconstrue this as, you know, thinking that it's unsafe. We know that there's all sorts of therapeutics that we use every day in our daily practice that have never been studied in pregnant women for this very ethics uh, approval reason. But it doesn't right. mean that it's necessarily unsafe in, in pregnancy. Um, so I think, uh, you know, a lot of this uh, half-truth uh, kind of manipulation is occurring. Uh, right. Yeah, by, by the fringe, I would say. Um, right. And, you know, that always comes back to the issue of weighing risks and benefits for mm -hmm. any type of intervention, right? And so we look at, and we talked about it already, which is 
the amount of death and, and despair that's occurred during this pandemic. You know, we can in the United States look at the FDA approval and it's not a full approval, but it's through an emergency use authorization, meaning we're in this really unusual circumstance. And it's true. I mean, uh, in 2020, the number of deaths in the United States was the highest it's ever been in recorded U.S. history by at least 400,000 people. And that's all attributable to COVID-19. And so we have to know that, look, while we don't have all of the information available to us, if we weigh the risks and benefits in terms of the benefits of protecting us against this deadly disease and how it impacts our community, um, those benefits far outweigh the potential risks that we know about with these vaccines to this point. So we, we have to take a certain level of risk with us and, and know that we're not only doing this for ourselves, but for society and for the world as a whole, so we can all heal and move uh, forward together. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, we were discussing briefly just before uh, you know recording that in, in, in our practice, we basically are allergist immunologists. So we deal with patients with immunologic issues. We deal with patients who have allergies. You know, there was that whole hysteria about if you have a shellfish allergy, you're going to have a reaction. And all, right. all, all of these things have you know resulted in our offices really just kind of being overwhelmed and bombarded with, uh, with patient questions. I think born out of you know genuine concern when every news outlet is reporting on it. Um, how, what is your approach to uh, you know allaying some of these fears that patients may have? Absolutely. So I think the first point is to always listen to them first. Give them a chance to to really talk about their concerns and ask them where do they get that information from, um, because there's so many different sources of information. And if you can try to steer them towards useful places. So what I do is with my practice, I have a personal Twitter account. I also have a Facebook page with my practice and uh, we have a blog at our website. I will post useful pieces of information that are evidence-based on those sources or I create visuals to help people put into context what these levels of risk are. And we have found in previous studies that patients really do trust their doctors for the most part. Um, not everybody, but the majority do. So when you give them that time to listen to their concerns and then steer them in the right direction, um, I think that makes a huge difference for people. And I've already seen that pay out um, with patients that I'm uh, working with on a daily basis. Yeah, that, that's great. Uh, and we have, uh, you know, I routinely, you know, point patients to CDC and Health Canada you know, the information, and I would say the credible information is out there. Um, you know, I'm not sure what the draw is for these conspiracy theories and, uh, you know, these kind of overblown concerns uh, to report every single reaction as a headline. Um, right. But, uh, you know, it, it, it is, there, the credible information is out there. And uh, I guess you're right, the, the patients do like the personal touch that patient therapeutic rapport uh, is very powerful in trying to allay uh, some of these fears. Right, absolutely. Um, so, you know, this is, it, this is a unique opportunity for us as allergists and immunologists to really take the forefront and discuss these issues since a lot of the fears do stem from severe allergic reactions with these vaccines. And so I think it's time for us to be able to speak out and give it, uh, really credible and helpful information to the public. Yeah, and absolutely. And I, and, you know, one of uh, some of my most anxious or concerned patients, I would just Know, tell them that anaphylaxis is very treatable um you know right but covid is very difficult to treat uh, exactly at a one minute intervention versus a week's potential or 
the ultimate price at the end of the day. So, right, you know, as it stands today, nobody has died from anaphylaxis due to these to the COVID vaccine. We're taking a lot of precautions throughout the community, saying, look, everybody's got to wait 15 minutes after their shot. Yeah. Um, if you have a history of anaphylaxis or food allergy things like that, you should wait 30 minutes afterwards because we're finding that about 70 to 80% of the time, it's occurring within the first 15 minutes. And then there's only maybe one outlier outside of the 30 minute window. So it's pretty safe to say if you wait 15 to 30 minutes, we're gonna catch it. And in terms of treating anaphylaxis, it's always about that time to getting to epinephrine. The faster you give it, the better the outcomes are. When you delay it, that's when you're in trouble. Absolutely, and I, I'm happy to report the protocol is identical here uh, north of your border. Uh, yes. We have the 15-minute rule for everyone, and any history or concern about anaphylaxis from a pre-existing uh, allergy, the patients are advised to wait half an hour uh, at the hospital distribution sites here. So it's good to see that everyone is consistent and on board. Uh, you know, the science should be really universal, so it's really good to see that. Uh, thank you, Zachary, for this. Uh, you know, you and I have both I was fighting to get the vaccine. That's how badly I wanted the vaccine. Right, so. <laughs> right. I, I was really excited to get it as well. So it's really a pleasure talking with you about this. This is really important for everybody to hear more about. And I appreciate you having me on your podcast. Definitely good side effects of hope and, uh, and uh, you know, uplifting of mood for sure. Absolutely.